Hi, this is Lily Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. So today we're talking about sections 115 to 120. And brothers and sisters, it's just amazing to me how even these short sections just are jam-packed with amazing doctrine and amazing lessons for us to take away behaviorally. Let's start with a little historical background. The end of 1837, the Kirtland Safety Society had collapsed. That was kind of a banking institution that was started by Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon in order to kind of, you know, help the economy develop in Kirtland when they couldn't get loans for farmland, whatever. Anyway, there was also a kind of a nationwide financial crisis at that time that led to a fairly long-lasting period of depression economically. So there were lots of reasons why that didn't succeed. But many of the members of the church were pretty upset by that and felt that Joseph Smith had then not been wise and must not be a prophet. And they didn't feel a lot of confidence. Again, there were many who apostatized at that time, including the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. So that was a real blow, obviously, to Joseph Smith. A lot of persecution ensued. There were a lot of threats of violence against Joseph Smith. And the Lord commands Joseph and Sidney to travel and relocate to far west. And when they get to far west, just four days earlier, they find out that the stake high council of the far west stake had excommunicated an unrepentant W.W. Phelps and John Whitmer, who were the counselors in the state presidency. So, you know, this was a really tough time. Apparently, Phelps and Whitmer had been involved in some transactions that they shouldn't have been, or they'd kept some of the monies from sales. They also had sold property that Revelation had said not to sell. Anyway, there were some issues like that, and they were not repentant about it. So they were both excommunicated. The Far West Stake had delayed dealing with David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery, who were also involved in some of those transactions. And about three months later, both David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery are excommunicated. So this is a really tough time for the church. And you know, it makes sense when you think about it. We just talked last time about, or a couple of times ago, about how the bells of hell ring when a temple is built, right? And how beautifully Brigham Young turns that around and says, I want to hear them ring again. Well, that's terrific. And we've got 251 operating temples, or not operating, but we have 251 temples in the world right now. This is remarkable and wonderful. But yeah, the bells of hell ring occasionally. They certainly ring here. After the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, you know, all this breaks loose with the Kirtland Safety Society and great losses happen to the church in terms of losing members, prominent members of the church. Must have been really painful for Joseph Smith and others who had seen some of these men make such important contributions. At any rate, here we are in Far West, which is almost 60 miles kind of northeast of Independence or, you know, Jackson County, Missouri, where the temple lot was. So they're not too far, but they're far enough away that they think that they can settle in safety. And eventually, about almost 5,000 members of the church gather to far west and they start building homes. They pretty soon they've got over 150 homes, they've got lots of businesses and farms and so on. So they're doing what they usually do, which is developing the area and building businesses, building farms, building homes. So here in section 115, we get a very clear statement about the name of the church. Verses 
4 and 5 in section 115 say, For thus shall my church be called in the last days, even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So that's the official revelation that tells us what the church should be called in the latter days. And in verse 5, Verily I say unto you all, Arise and shine forth, that thy light may be a standard for the nations. So that's always the admonition to the church is to arise and shine forth, be a standard to the nations, an ensign to the nations. And that's our charge today too. So then after this, in the same section, we get some direction on building a temple in far west. Verse 8 says, Therefore I command you to build a house unto me for the gathering together of my saints that they may worship me. So, you know, they were going to try to build a temple in Independence there in Jackson County, but That didn't happen because the mobs became so violent that it became dangerous to stay. So they've now kind of retired to far west, a little bit of distance away from independence. And they're going to build a temple there. If you visited far west, you can see the temple cornerstones are still there. And there's a monument that talks about when those were placed, etc. So the saints did start to comply with that commandment. And God gives very specific instructions that follow verse 8, that say when and how that is to be done. So that's what we do, right? We, we go places, we try to establish communities, and then we build temples. And that is something that starts right away with the Lord, as it did here in Salt Lake Valley, when Brigham Young immediately declared, this is where we'll build our temple. We've talked about that a few times. So this is what the saints do. Now, they don't get to stay in Far West, and they they move on. Uh, eventually they go to Nauvoo. You know, here they have come pretty far west from Kirtland, Ohio, about 800 miles west and a little bit south. And then they get up to far west, about 60 miles to the northeast, and eventually they're going to go another 200 plus miles to Nauvoo, Illinois, a little bit further north and east, where they will settle. And again, this time successfully build a temple. But they'll move on. And I think it's interesting to consider how often they moved and how refining that was. I mean, the people who continued to pull up stakes and pack up their belongings and their families and move again because of persecution. I mean, it's pretty amazing that they remained willing and flexible to do that. My mother pointed this out to me when I was still pretty young and she was reading through the DNC in section 51 verses 16 and 17 The saints are wondering, you know, how long they're going to be where they are currently living. And the answer is this from section 51, verses 16 and 17. And I consecrate unto them this land for a little season. Now, notice (laughs) a little season until I, the Lord, shall provide for them otherwise and command them to go hence. So in other words, he's saying, this is where I want you to be for for this season it might be a little season but until i tell you to move this is where i want you to be and then look what he goes on to say in verse 17 and the hour and the day is not given unto them wherefore let them act upon this land as for years and this shall turn unto them for their good i think this is fascinating the hour and the day is not given unto them wherefore let them act upon this land as for years In other words, I'm not going to tell you right now how long you're going to be here, but I want you to act like you're going to stay. Act like you're going to be here for a long time. And what does that mean? That means build, develop, plant. 
You know, go ahead about the business of living. Act as if you're going to be here for a very long time. And why? Because it's not good for us to be sitting on our suitcase waiting for the bus. God doesn't want that. He doesn't want us like perched on the edge of things, like wondering when the next thing comes. And we've all heard this, haven't we? That like there are a lot of people in life who are not happy until the next, you know, mountain has conquered. Sort of it's always like, well, you know, when we move into a house or, you know, when the house is paid off or, you know, when we're able to decorate the family room or, you know, whatever, you know, there are always these milestones or when I get a new job or when I get that promotion or, you know, whatever the case is, when the kids are grown up or when they're all in school, you know, whatever it is, we we are always sort of, not always, but a lot of us kind of look forward to that next milestone and think that then life will be better or it will begin in a new way. And that's really not the healthiest way to go. We need to plant ourselves in our lives and act as though this is going to be the case for years and get good at it. Get really good at being what we are. Remember that David O. McKay thing that he saw in his mission in Scotland where it said, whatever thou art, act well thy part. I think that really is connected to this. Let's be happy with where we are and not worry about what's coming or what has come in the past. The Lord blesses his people if we are obedient and willing to obey. And that's exactly what he says. This shall turn unto them for their good. It will be better for them to go ahead and plant, even if they're not going to be around for the harvest. It'll be better for them to build, even if somebody else is going to end up living in this place, or to develop their farms or to build businesses. It will be better for them to be anxiously engaged in a good cause. And again, remember, not anxious, but anxiously engaged in a good cause. That's good for us to to go about doing good. Remember, it said that of the Savior, that he went about doing good. Like, do we want something better than that? Let's go about our lives doing good, not looking for the, you know, the completion of this or the this new threshold that we are thinking at that point, then I can be happy, then I can be fulfilled. That doesn't work. It's whatever we are, you know, let us act well our part. And the Lord prospers us when we are content with what he has allotted us. Now, to finish the story of section 51, where we just read those verses, in section 54, verse 7, the saints are commanded to move on. And that happens two months later. So in verse 51, he's telling them, act upon this land as for years. Two months later in section 54, it's time to leave. But in the meantime, those people were anxiously engaged in good causes, building things, putting down roots, planting seeds. There's a great takeaway there for us to not be perched or sitting on the edge of our suitcase waiting, waiting for the next bus. That's not what the Lord wants for us. He wants us to invest in life and do what's before us in a serious and genuine way. I just love that lesson. I was very grateful that my mom picked up on that. It's kind of obscure. I've never heard anybody else mention that, but it's it's a great little sermon. And here we see it happening again. You know, the saints leaving Kirtland, going to Independence, or that one group that went to Independence that became pretty large, and then they're kicked out of Independence, go to Far West, and here come the rest of the saints from Kirtland, and they don't get to stay here all that many years either. Because this, as I said, is like January of 1838, when Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon get to Far West, and they end up leaving just a few years later. So we still have important revelations here. 
as we just talked about in section 115. And then in section 116, we've mentioned before when we talked about Adam on Diamond, and it's just the clarification that that is Spring Hill, Missouri, that is the place of Adam on Diamond. But now in section 117, we're going to talk about really a great message as well. This is just one of my favorite sections. Can I say that? I, I like so many of these sections, but this is a favorite of mine. So here, this is specifically going to start talking to William Mark and Newell K. Whitney. And let's just read the first two verses. Verily thus saith the Lord unto my servant William Marks, and also unto my servant Newell K. Whitney, let them settle up their business speedily, and journey from the land of Kirtland before I, the Lord, send again the snows upon the earth. Okay, that's specific. You need to leave Kirtland and get to far west before winter time. Verse 2, let them awake and arise and come forth and not tarry, for I, the Lord, command it. Okay, so what was going on? Well, William Marks and... Newell K. Whitney had businesses in Kirtland. And it was hard to wrap that up and leave those businesses behind. They had, you know, put a lot of work into that and invested quite a bit in of uh, building up time and whatever. And here they are being told to leave. But so they had kind of stayed behind in Kirtland. Going on with verse three, therefore, if they tarry, in other words, they stay behind in Kirtland and don't come when I'm telling them to, it shall not be well with them. Verse four, let them repent of all their sins and of all their covetous desires before me, saith the Lord. Now, here is a great statement. For what is property unto me, saith the Lord? Okay, let's ponder that for a moment. What is property unto me, saith the Lord? So, I mean... What a reminder to all of us, certainly to the saints of this time, but to all of us, that, again, the earth is the Lord's. You think he cares about property? It all belongs to him, and he will dispose as he sees fit. And that dispose not meaning throw away, but like dispense it to people, give or or take it back as he sees the need for the consecration of his saints, for the refinement of his saints. And he does not want us. It is so clear all through the DNC. He does not want us to be attached to stuff. This was the message to Martin Harris very early in the DNC. Don't even covet your own property. Are you kidding? It's not really yours. It's mine. I've let you have it for a a little season. And why? So you could provide for the printing of the Book of Mormon and help with other financial needs of the of the early church. That's why Martin Harris had stuff. And the Lord is saying, don't kid yourself. It's not yours. Now, remember the story of Gideon. This is such a great story in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges. Let's, let's take a minute on this. This is in chapter 7 uh, of the book of Judges. Actually, in chapter 6, we, we hear about the call of Gideon, and he's the one that put the lamb's fleece out, and we've talked about that before, but I'm not going to talk about that right now. I'm going to talk about chapter 7. So after Gideon you know, accepts the call to lead the armies of Israel against the Amalekites and the Midianites, and these two groups are huge, like their camels are without number, and they're like grasshoppers on the field. So in other words, there are tons of these enemy soldiers who have come to try to take over Israel, and Israel is a small country, so um, and with a small population. So anyway, he sends out the word to each of the 12 tribes to come to fight against the enemy army. And uh, 32,000 men come. 32,000. I mean, that's a bunch of men, but against camels without number, it's, it's not going to compare much. 
with the numbers of the enemy. Anyway, remember what the Lord says unto Gideon, and this is verse 2 of chapter 7 in Judges, the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Lest, and here's the reason why, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, mine own hand hath saved me. So, how well does the Lord know human nature? <laughs> That's a rhetorical question. I mean, he knows everything about us. And and what is he saying? He's saying if 32,000, even against camels without number, if 32,000 Israelites fight the Midianites and win, they're going to say, look what we did. Look how, look how strong we are. Look how amazing we are that we beat this superior force in battle. And the Lord knows how easily we become proud and stiff-necked. So he tells Gideon to send home anybody who's afraid. And I mean, that's good news for the army because 22,000 go home. So there are 10,000 that remain. Now, that's not very many next to this uh, group of Midianites and Amalekites. And yet the Lord says, nope, this is verse 4, the people are yet too many. And then he gives them this test to bring down the water and see who drinks on their belly and laps like a dog out of the water. And the other ones who cup the hand of water and drink out of their hands, he says, you can keep those. And so that's what he did. He'd send them down to the water and he watches to see which ones lap like a dog out of the water and which ones cup the water into their hands. And the ones who cup the water in their hands are 300 men. <laughs> so <laughs> I can only imagine Gideon you know, looking to the Lord and saying, is this okay? Can I keep 300? <laughs> and the Lord's, yeah, yeah, you can keep 300. Because no idiot is going to ever believe that 300 men could beat the Midianites. <laughs> they will have to acknowledge that God was with them. So that's, that's the issue. Now, like, again, this is kind of the same thing he's saying to the saints. If you can make the connection, I think, you know, it's a beautiful connection. Here he's telling Newell K. Whitney and William Mark, what is property unto me? Like, you think I'm not in charge? You think, I, you think you're in charge? You think it's your own work that has built that business without my blessing, without my allowance, without my permission, basically? And no, it's not. And, you know, again, this law of consecration that requires that we recognize that all things come from God and we are simply stewards. And some people are given you know, the talents and the blessing for their stewardships to grow and others not. And it's not a matter of like how good they are or how smart they are. I'm not saying that those things aren't involved. I'm saying they all come from the Lord. Like, where do our good ideas come from? Remember, that's a statement from John Pontius in one of his books. Where do we think our good ideas come from? So we're going to take credit for that. We're going to say, mine own arm hath done this. Mine own arm hath built my business or built my savings or built my fortune. What we can say is that I have tried to be a faithful steward over the things that the Lord has given me, including opportunities and ideas and inspirations and the energy to work and the places that I've been or the chances that have opened up or the people that I've been able to connect with that have helped me prosper. But we have to, if we're going to do it right, we need to acknowledge the Lord and then let him dispose of these things as he chooses. And in the law of consecration, what he chooses is that we give it all and then we get a stewardship back and we try to prosper the stewardship, again, not taking credit, but knowing that we have been blessed with the ideas, with the hard work that we were able to do, etc., and then give glory to God and give of the surplus so that all can be blessed. Joseph Smith 
you know, didn't have that gift, did he? Are we saying that Joseph Smith wasn't righteous because he didn't really prosper financially or that he didn't work hard enough? I mean, clearly (laughs) that would not be the case. It wasn't his calling to prosper in temporal matters. He was called to different things. And so, again, we shouldn't be judging each other as to like, well, that person, you know, has worked harder because look how much they have as opposed to this one who doesn't have and they must not have worked as hard or tried as much or whatever. That's totally irrelevant. The Lord gives and the Lord withholds according to his complete and perfect knowledge of what will help us to move forward the best in our individual stations. I hope this is making sense because I'm pretty excited about it. I think it's a great, a great thing to be reminded of again and again. Going on, you know, just, okay, I'm going to read again a little bit of verse four. And this is section 117, of course. For what is property unto me, saith the Lord? Let the properties of Kirtland be turned out for debts, saith the Lord. Let them go, saith the Lord. That's another great statement. Let them go. And whatsoever remaineth, let it remain in your hands, saith the Lord. Verse 6, For have I not the fowls of heaven, and also the fish of the sea, and the beasts of the mountains? Have I not made the earth? It's kind of like, let's review. (laughs) Let's review who's talking to you. This is all mine. Do I not hold the destinies of all the armies of the nations of the earth? Verse 7, Therefore, Will I not make solitary places to bud and to blossom and to bring forth in abundance, saith the Lord? And he did make the desert bloom in the great salt lake desert, didn't he? But any place can be made abundant and prosperous by the Lord when it is the right time and the right place. Verse 8, is there not room enough on the mountains of Adam on Diamon and on the plains of Olaha Shineha? or the land where Adam dwelt, that you should covet that which is but the drop and neglect the more weighty matters. Again, rhetorical questions here, but it's like, seriously? Seriously, you're going to try to hang on to your business when I own all of it. All of it is at my disposal when and how I choose for my saints to move forward, either by chastening, by refinement, by prosperity when the time comes. Verse 9, therefore, come up hither unto the land of my people, even Zion. What a powerful message. I just love this. I love this. I think it's marvelous. And then an interesting little statement here. He talks about William Marks in verse 10. If he's faithful over a few things, he'll be ruled over many. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 11. Let my servant Newell K. Whitney be ashamed of the Nicolaitan band and of all their secret abominations and of all his littleness of soul before me saith the Lord, and come up to the land of Adam on Diamond and be a bishop unto my people, saith the Lord, not in name, but in deed, saith the Lord. Remember, in section 112, we talked about how saith the Lord seems to be punctuation to to God. And these are some exclamation points, I would say, again, here in this section. So what is the Nicolaitan band? And, you know, it's kind of interesting. Bruce R. McConkie says this, that it probably, by the way, refers to Nicholas in the a character in the New Testament who was supposed to be kind of like a bishop. He was in charge of some of the temporal affairs of the church, but then he started to go after prosperity and worldliness. So there was a little group that apparently followed him that they think is where this name originated. But here's what Elder Bruce R. McConkie said. He wrote that the Nicolaitans today are, quote, members of the church who are trying to maintain their church standing 
while continuing to live after the manner of the world. Now that's really clear. People who are members and they're trying to maintain church standing, but they really want to follow after the manner of the world. They're not willing to really consecrate or do what the Lord says wholeheartedly. So going on, McConkie writes, this designation has come to be used to identify those who want their names on the records of the church, but do not want to devote themselves to the gospel cause with full purpose of heart. And that's from his doctrinal New Testament commentary. So really significant here that Newell K. Whitney is getting this warning. In other words, don't get caught up in worldly things. You cannot be mine and still be attached to the world. Remember how Neil A. Maxwell used to talk about that sort of like, you know, that there are members of the church who still want to have their summer cottage in Babylon. Same idea. You know, you kind of know that you should be in the church. You know that there are blessings to come here. You know it's true, but you're dragging one foot back in Babylon. You still want to have that summer cottage. You still want to have, you know, the success of the world or the fame of the world or whatever. You're still worldly, and that's not enough for the Lord. It's it's never going to be enough. Okay, now a powerhouse of a message comes in this section, 117, starting in verse 12. And again, I say unto you, I remember my servant, Oliver Granger. Behold, verily I say unto him that his name shall be had in sacred remembrance from generation to generation, forever and ever, saith the Lord. Again, punctuation, saith the Lord. His name shall be had in sacred remembrance from generation to generation. Some people have complained and said, well, Oliver Granger isn't that well known, even by members of the church. So, you know, is that a false prophecy or whatever? And and then it's pointed out that, well, God isn't saying he's going to be had in worldly remembrance. He's saying he's going to be had in sacred remembrance, which basically means the Lord will remember him from generation to generation. So that's what matters here, is that the Lord is going to remember Oliver Granger. And let's take a second and hear a little bit about who Oliver Granger was. So originally, he was a Methodist, and he became a minister in that faith. He married a woman named Lydia, and the two of them read the Book of Mormon in 1832 and were converted. They were convinced that it was a true book and a true record of Christ's ministry on the planet. In fact, according to one of Oliver Granger's daughters, He had a vision of the angel Moroni coming to him and telling him that the Book of Mormon was a true record of great worth and that he should become a Mormon preacher, which he did. So he and his wife were baptized by Brigham Young, and he was an ordained an elder by Brigham Young and Joseph Smith, and then he started going on missions. You know, so many of these early saints left their families and went on missions, and he just got to, you know, just appreciate the sacrifices that were made by these people. It was hard on everybody. It was hard on the men who are leaving and going without person script to teach the gospel to people who, you know, some received it, but a lot didn't. And then you got to give it to the wives who stay behind with the children, sometimes pregnant, you know, having children with or without their husbands around, you know, dealing with sickness and poverty and having to move from place to place when maybe their husbands were there and maybe they weren't. There's a lot written about Brigham Young's second wife. His first wife had died after they had two children. And then he marries Mary Angel, and they have a son very soon. And then they have a twin boy and girl, and then more children. So, you know, and Brigham Young is being called on missions. In fact, half of the first five years of their marriage, he was gone on missions. 
and she's having these babies, even twins, and taking care of these children, sometimes without money, you know, having to make do wherever they are. One mission, you probably heard this story, he and Heber C. Kimball are leaving, I think it's leaving Nauvoo by then, in a wagon, and they both are sick with malaria. And, you know, they try to have a good attitude. And, you know, before they're out of sight, they kind of rise up in the back of the wagon and call out, hurrah for Israel, you know, trying to have a message of inspiration as they leave sick on another mission to obey the will of the Lord. At that time, Brigham Young's wife, Mary, was sick too with malaria, and most of the children were sick. So, I mean, they're doing amazing things because the Lord is asking them to do it. So here's Oliver Granger, who's one of those, you know, he joins the church and goes off and starts to preach the gospel on these missions, and he served several missions over the years. I became aware of Oliver Granger when Boyd K. Packer used him in a conference talk in 2004 called The Least of These, and it's a great talk. I would really encourage you to go back and look that talk up. Boyd K. Packer, 2004, October 2004, called The Least of These. He gives a great tribute to Oliver Granger and makes a tremendous message out of this man's example. But here in that speech, he describes Oliver Granger this way. He says, Oliver Granger was a very ordinary man. He was mostly blind, having lost his sight by cold and exposure. So, wow. I mean, situations were tough then, and it had cost him most of his eyesight. And he still went on these missions without purser script. I mean, there's great courage there. Boyd K. Packer continues, the first presidency described him as, quote, a man of the most strict integrity and moral virtue and in fine to be a man of God, end quote. That's a pretty high attribute. So let's read verse 13 and see what his assignment is here in section 117. Therefore, let him contend earnestly for the redemption of the first presidency of my church, saith the Lord. And when he falls, notice that, not if he falls, when he falls, he shall rise again, for his sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase, saith the Lord. That is an amazing sermon right there. That's just an amazing sermon. May we all learn from it and implement it. His sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase, saith the Lord. Meaning that the fact that Oliver Granger is willing to serve the Lord, even when he's going to fail, which he does, by the way, that's not what matters to the Lord, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I mean, God is the God of the harvest. He can have a harvest anytime he wants. He's the one who makes all that happen or makes it not happen because he has a purpose in mind. So what is he saying? When he falls, he shall rise again for his sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase saith the Lord. The Lord's not worried about the bottom line. (laughs) When the harvest comes, it's going to be amazing. Remember how often he tells us that I have not seen, neither ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man, the things which the Lord hath prepared for them that love him. Like, don't worry about the harvest. It's going to be amazing when it comes, but it will come in its due time, not when we want it necessarily. So what was Oliver Granger's assignment? Well, he was sent back to Kirtland to try to settle the debts of the First Presidency. Joseph Smith and all the church leaders, whatever, when they left, left a lot of unpaid debts. And there were a lot of properties that they owned in Kirtland that they didn't have time to sell. They were getting out of there because there were threats of violence and, you know, mob issues again. 
So Oliver Granger is sent back. He's a man of strict integrity. And he's supposed to go back and try to settle the debts of the church and sell the properties. Well, tell me how willing you think people would be to put money out for property that's been abandoned, especially those people who were not very friendly to the saints. And some of them were really violent against the saints. So here Oliver Granger is going to go back and say, hey, do you want to buy that property that you're already living in? Or do you want to buy that business that you've already taken over? He really wasn't successful at all in selling the properties of the church. So he wasn't able to bring any money back to the first presidency because of of any successful sales. What he was successful at, however, was arranging to eliminate those debts that the first presidency had left. I mean, you know, God's wanting his people to be honest. And so Oliver goes back there and makes deals with the creditors. And he does pay back some of the debts. And I don't know the details of this. didn't see anything written about this, but it did get settled. The debts of the first presidency got settled. Now, one of the creditors that had been owed money by the church said this of Oliver Granger, quote, Oliver Granger's management in the arrangement of the unfinished business of people that have moved to the far west in redeeming their pledges and thereby sustaining their integrity, because that's important to God, right? That we maintain our integrity and we pay our debts. So going on with a quote, has been truly praiseworthy and has entitled him to my highest esteem and every grateful recollection. That was a man named Horace Kingsbury. That's incredible. That's incredible that as difficult a situation as Oliver Granger encountered, he was able to manage things in such a way with his strict integrity that that integrity was displayed. And these creditors saw the integrity of the church through Oliver Granger's actions there. Really quite an accolade. He ended up staying in Kirtland, you know, trying to do the business of the church and died at age 47. He was fairly young. And many, many people, although there were very few saints left in Kirtland at the time, many people attended his funeral from Kirtland and outside that were not just members of the church because of the integrity that he had earned a reputation for. So again, quite an accolade. But I'm I'm just going to say again how beautiful this thought is that to the Lord, our sacrifice is more sacred than our increase. I, I hope you'll ponder that and think about it and teach it to your children that the Lord wants a people who will obey. That's what he is interested in because as we obey and we harness our natural man and, and, you know, we really manage the rest of our appetites so that they don't interfere with our willingness to obey the Lord in consistency. In doing so, we qualify for the power he wants to give us. And that's kind of what this is all about. He has unlimited power to give us, but how is he going to give it to us if we're erratic? If we only obey sometimes or when we feel like it and we're inconsistent and we only obey when there's a harvest, when there's an immediate reward for obeying, that doesn't count. How does that count? I mean, that's kind of what Christ was saying, right? When he says, if you love them that love you, did you want a reward for that? (laughs) I mean, that's easy to do. That doesn't require harnessing your natural man. But if you love them that hate you, okay, now I'm paying attention. And if you sacrifice when there's no harvest in sight, now I'm paying attention. Because it's the sacrifice I'm looking for. It's the willingness to obey whatever it costs that I'm looking for. And no, it's not for sissies. 
This is absolutely for people who choose to be the children of light, who choose to be sacred to God in sacred remembrance with the Lord. How powerful is that? Okay, we got to mention section 119, which is about tithing. Now, I mean, this is good news and bad news, right? Because here's the law of the tithing instituted. But the bad news is that the Lord had given them a chance to institute the law of consecration, the united order. But remember, he said in past sections, I'm not pleased with the way you're doing this because of covetousness. And again, there it is again, attachment to property, attachment to stuff. You know, we're not living the united order now, obviously, but that is the law of the kingdom. And if we want to prepare for Zion, we need to detach from our stuff. I'm not saying we have to give it all away. I'm not saying we have to, you know, go live in a hovel somewhere or in some kind of, you know, lowly condition. I'm I'm saying we need not to see our possessions as ours. We need to understand that we are stewards over the blessings that God has given us and to not think mine own arm hath done that. You know, to not take credit for the blessings that we have received, but to give glory to God for the blessings, the abundance that he has given to us, and that, but recognize that it's his. And if he wants it, he can have it. And that in the meantime, we should be generous to the poor, that we should be generous wherever we can be, because it's the, it's the Lord's. It all belongs to the Lord's. And we need to teach our children that too. I mean, it's, I realize it's challenging when we live in abundance and everybody in, in the United States, at least, and in many other countries as well, live in relative abundance compared with generations past. There are still some areas in the world, of course, that have real poverty and and real need. But even there, many things have been done in the last many years that have almost eliminated hunger in the world. Do you notice that people don't talk about hunger so much anymore? They talk about food insecurity. Have you noticed the change? In years past, they used to talk about people who were hungry. And now they're saying, well, food insecurity, which, okay, I'm not saying that that's a good thing because... It's nice to know that you've got a next meal coming or that your children have a next meal coming. But hunger has, by and large, been been almost eliminated worldwide because of techniques which have increased production and distribution and so on. So again, I'm not saying there isn't a lot of work still to do, but I am saying that, that we live in a time of you know, amazing abundance relative to how the world has been in ages past, where so many people lived, you know, very few years, relatively speaking, and, and struggled with, with just survival all the time. Reading from section 119, verses 1 and 2, Verily thus saith the Lord, I require all their surplus property to be put in the hands of the bishop of my church in Zion, Verse 2, for the building of mine house and for the laying of the foundation of Zion and for the priesthood and for the debts of the presidency of my church. So again, there were a lot of financial needs at this time. And the Lord's saying, this is how we're going to handle it. So we're going to require all the surplus. And then going on in verse 4, we read, and after that, those who have thus been tithed shall pay one-tenth of all their interest annually. And that's where we get our definition of tithing in these latter days. And this shall be a standing law unto them forever from my holy priesthood, saith the Lord. Okay, so one-tenth of our interest, or we say increase annually. But notice that to begin with, 
what the Lord was asking was for everybody to give of their surplus. Meaning, look at what you have, see what you actually need for your family or for your subsistence, and then give the rest to the church as the first act of tithing. And after that, give one-tenth every year of your increase or interest annually. So that was, again, a pretty big sacrifice for these saints. It was interesting because when the elders of the church were going around to get these donations, they asked Joseph Smith, so how do we know or how are we going to determine what is their surplus? And Joseph Smith said, let them determine it which is so consistent with the Lord's way, right? Because it's not like they're going to come in and say, we want all of this and this and this, and you can live on what's left. It was every person's opportunity to decide what they could give up as surplus to help the Lord do his work. And at this time, they were they were thinking they were going to build a temple in far west, which was going to require means. And of course, paying the debts of the first presidency and of the church and to be able to move the work forward. So that was what they did. They went around and people gave their surplus, however they determined that to be. And then after that, one-tenth. Now, we all know the. hopefully you've all seen the video, The Windows of Heaven, so we know that this didn't take hold as a very consistent practice until there was that drought in Utah many years later when Lorenzo Snow was the president of the church and when he was visiting St. George and speaking in the tabernacle there, he had a vision that told him that the saints needed to pay their tithes. And the church was at that time again in serious debt, and the Lord was withholding the rain until they got the message that he was serious about building the kingdom through paying our tithes, which is a much simpler sacrifice than, you know, the law of consecration. So it's kind of like, if you can't do that, you know, we're certainly not ready for the law of consecration. So I hope that we do pay our tithes and generous offerings We can talk about that on another occasion, but there are so many great blessings that come when we are willing to not be so attached to our stuff and cheerfully pay our tithes and generous offerings to the church and to make donations elsewhere when we know we can be of help and we have the means to do it. Section 120 talks about how the tithes will be handled and who will be responsible for the disposition of the tithes. And now, just to update this, the tithes are decided on by the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve, and the Presiding Bishopric that has charge over temporal affairs. So those are the people who, in our church today, decide how tithing funds will be spent. Now, there's a great story by Marion G. Romney that was actually recorded in the Relief Society magazine back in like 1968. So this is an old story, but I remembered hearing it, and I'm glad I could find a copy of it. Marion G. Romney was speaking to the Relief Society, and he said this. He said, about a quarter of a century ago, and remember, he's speaking in 1968, so he's talking about 1943. Sister Romney and I moved into a ward in which they were just beginning to build a meeting house. Now, let me pause to say that even Chris and I, when we were still young marrieds, lived in this era when any church needed to be built or any ward needed to build a new meeting house, like because, you know, the ward split or a new ward was organized in an area and there was a need for a new chapel or a new building, the bishop would, and, and you know, he had access to the tithing slips, so he knew basically what people's income was if they were paying a fair tithe. And he would go and talk to each person, like usually at tithing settlement or maybe at a separate meeting that he would call people in 
family by family, meaning the parents, of course, and he would ask for a certain amount of money. And this would be kind of his decision as the bishop to say, this is how much we need from you to build this building. And he would ask that we fulfill that request by making those donations. And that's how they built chapels. And temples, similarly, we were asked to make donations for the temple so that temples could be built. And the church did not just cover the bill for all those things. There were also assessments made for just the handling of ward business and keeping the ward running, you know, building maintenance fees, repair things, you know, as well as the materials for each class and all that kind of stuff. We each were assessed a ward budget contribution. Sometimes there were budget activities, they would have bazaars, or they would have dinners that people would pay. I mean, we donate the food, and then we'd buy it back to eat um, with our family so that we could raise money for the ward budget. So sometimes things were done as a ward to raise money for the budget. But also people were asked to contribute if those activities were not sufficient to run the ward business. So it was a big change when the church said, No, we now have enough. All we want from you now are tithes and generous fast offerings and other offerings to the missionary or humanitarian funds, etc. But they can handle the cost of running the church otherwise. So that's pretty amazing. Okay, back to this. Sister Romney and I moved into a ward in which they were just beginning to build a meeting house. The size of the contribution the bishop thought I ought to contribute rather staggered me. So the bishop is saying, I need this much from the Romney household. And Mary G. Romney was like, wow. He goes on to say, I thought it was at least twice as much as he should have asked. However, I had just been called to a rather high church position, so I couldn't very well say no. (laughs) That's kind of funny. But he's like, look, I'm just being entrusted by the Lord with a pretty high church position. And how am I going to say no to the bishop who's asking me to contribute this much for the meeting house? Continuing, he says, therefore, I said, well, I will pay it, bishop, but I will have to pay it in installments because I don't have the money. And so I began to pay. And I paid and paid until I was down to about the last three payments when, as is my habit, I was reading the Book of Mormon and came to the scripture which said, this is from Moroni 7, verse 8, if a man giveth a gift grudgingly, wherefore it is counted unto him the same as if he had retained the gift, wherefore he is counted evil before God. (laughs) So you can imagine... uh, President Romney is reading this. I mean, he wasn't President Romney at the time, but reading, if a man gives a gift grudgingly, it doesn't count. And he goes on to say, this shocked me because I was about, I was out about $1,000 while I went on and paid the three installments I had promised to pay. And then I paid several more installments to convince the Lord that I had done it with the right attitude. (laughs) So don't you just love people like this? Don't you just love these great men who really you know, put their money literally where their mouths are. I mean, he was a leader in the church, and he got this assessment that was about twice what he thought he could really afford and what would have been maybe a commensurate contribution for his income level. But he says, okay, I'll do it, and he does it, but perhaps with a little bit of a grudging attitude because he didn't really agree with the bishop's assessment. So then he reads this, Not for the first time, obviously, but reads it in the course of the time that he is paying this contribution and decides, well, I had better convince the Lord that I'm not grudging. So he pays many more installments of his payments to make sure the Lord knows that he is willing to give 
to sustain the kingdom of God. I think that is so beautiful. How wonderful is that? And how wonderful can that be for us if we recognize that, you know, the Lord is asking things of us and doing them is good, but we need to do them without a grudging attitude, without holding back. I love that story. Very different from a woman that I talked to many years ago who made a lot more money than we did. And she told me once that they were making so much money that they couldn't afford to pay their tithing. (laughs) I was like, "Uh, I don't think you're getting the concept of 10%. (laughs) Because, come on, like everybody is paying the same in terms of a flat rate 10% contribution. I don't think you can make so much money that you can't afford to pay tithing, but poorer people can pay their tithing. Anyway, don't get me started. So I love, I love the example of President Romney there with his wife. That's so beautiful. Just another couple of thoughts here about the takeaways. Remember, Alma talks to his son Helaman in Alma 37. And in verse 7, he says, And the Lord God doth work by means to bring about his great and eternal purposes. And by very small means, the Lord bringeth about the salvation of many souls. So that's what's always going on for the Lord. He's, He's working by means by means of moving the saints from place to place, by means of allowing the persecutors to fill the cup of of wrath or the cup of indignation that they'll be responsible for in the day of accountability, but that in the meantime can help to chasten the saints, can help the saints to be refined, reminded what they need. They are leaving property behind all the time. And he is saying, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. What is property unto me, saith the Lord? And We need to look in our own lives and see where the Lord is requiring these things of us. And are we stepping up? Are we growing in the way that these early saints grew and became a refined group? I'm not saying that they were all perfect. Obviously, they weren't. But there were so many that remained faithful and came and built up the Mountain West in a way that all nations did flow unto it. And that we all, wherever we live on the planet, are the beneficiaries of the sacrifices of these early pioneers, these early saints that built the church wherever they were, and then those who survived those early years, you know, came west. And it's because the Lord works by means, because he lets challenges happen and imposes some challenges himself, that they became the people that they became, that are worthy of our honor and respect and gratitude for what they did, because they were refined, because they allowed the work to happen, no matter what the sacrifice. Again, you know, as I've said, John Taylor, one of my heroes, one of my many heroes, whose motto was the kingdom of God or nothing. And that's how so many of these people lived. Are we living this way ourselves? You know, there are many times in our lives where we have problems and we pray for help and we don't get what we want. You know, it's not the time. It's not the Lord's plan for us to have that problem taken away or solved right away. And I remember one time when we were in a difficult trial, and I was praying for relief of, you know, whatever kind, and I had all these different requests that I was making, and they weren't being answered. I told my husband at one point, I said, you know, Chris, I'm just starting to say whatever prayers. And he said, what do you mean? It's like, I said, well, I don't want to stop praying, but I'm not getting anything I'm asking for. So I must, I'm obviously praying for the wrong stuff. So so I don't stop praying. I just say, dear Lord, whatever, you know, and then try to conclude my prayer, you know, and I realized pretty quickly that that was not what the Lord wanted. The Lord wanted me to study it out in my mind, to reason about the situation and to make requests, to have a direction, to have 
something in mind that I was asking for help with or a blessing about. And then, and this was the part that illuminated me, was to not be attached to how it turned out. Does that make sense? This is so important. It really, really was a blessing to me to learn this, that that the Lord wanted me to be invested enough to think about it, to make some decisions or plans, and to ask the Lord for help, but to not be tied to any particular outcome. Again, allowing the Lord to be the Lord of the harvest, and however and whenever he chose to let the harvest come, to be okay with that. But in the meantime, to be actively engaged myself in trying to do what I could do in that situation, my husband as well, of course, we worked together, and to be prayerful about it, but to not worry too much about how it turned out. But how can we do that? It's because we know how it turns out in the end. Because I have not seen, neither ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. So what we realized was that all of those trials or tests or difficulties were a chance for us to prove to the Lord that we were willing to continue to be obedient no matter what happened. And yes, we were looking for answers and trying to solve problems, but we didn't worry too much about how it turned out just then, because we know that in the big finish, it will be more than enough. It will be more than we can imagine. And what will really matter is that we are the Lord's. Now, I don't mean to say that these early saints were not blessed, because they were. And I want to mention this amazing verse from Malachi 4, which incidentally, is the chapter in the Old Testament that also talks about tithing, right? Where Lorenzo Snow quoted from when he was having that vision about prove me now herewith, right? Will a man rob God and all that stuff. And yet it's after that that I'm going to quote. It's starting with verse 13 of Malachi 3. Did I say 4? It's chapter 3, Malachi 3, verse 13. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? So look at what the Lord's saying. He's saying, hey, you're speaking badly about me. And then we apparently are asking, you know, what have we said against you? The Lord's answer, verse 14, ye have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Okay, look at what the Lord is saying. He's saying, you're acting like there's no blessing in obeying the Lord. Going on in Malachi 3, this is verse 15. And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. So in other words, he's saying you're jealous of people who are not being obedient. The proud and those that work wickedness, you're acting like they have a better reward than you do. Like, don't go there. Like, are you kidding me? Like, you're acting like there's no blessing. What does it profit? What does he say? Verse 14 again, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Like, really? Are we, are we really saying that? Going on to verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. So this is the reward, that those who really do fear the Lord are hearkened to by the Lord, and our names are written in a book of remembrance. And this book is the book of those who will be exalted in the celestial kingdom. Verse 17, 
And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. It's not vain to serve the Lord. The Lord allows trials to come upon his people that we may be refined, that we may demonstrate to ourselves and to the Lord that we will serve him at all costs. And yes, not an easy path, not for sissies, but we will be the ones that will be seen as the children of God, the children of the light, and we will be the ones that are claimed by the Lord himself in the day when he makes up his jewels. That's what he's offering. That's what it means to be a Zion people. May we work on it every day. Take care. Thanks again to my husband, Chris Anderson, for all his help and support with this podcast, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital, who does my audio editing. Thanks so much. <laughs>